0: Well, good morning, welcome to Grace Bible Church. I am not West Brazelton, my name's Travis Hill, I'm the small groups pastor here on staff. Uh, before we jump in today, I, the God, God put it on my heart a while back to take perspectives, and y'all, it's, it's really, really great class. Uh, it's a good opportunity to learn about how God has moved and grown the church uh, over the last couple of centuries and, and learn about other world religions and just how your heart can be cultivated for the nation. So I, I would encourage y'all to go talk to them after the sermon. Um, now, if you've been with us for the last two weeks, or, or two months really, or, or maybe more than that, uh, West has been preaching through 2 Corinthians. And last week he preached through chapter 11. It was, it was 33 verses, y'all. It was this massive chunk of text. Uh, today, today, we're going to preach through 10 verses. And we're going to start in chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 1. So if you want to go ahead and start opening your Bibles to that, uh, I'll give you some time to get there. And while y'all do, I want to I give y'all a little insight into what it looks like to prepare a sermon in, in any given week. Uh, basically what happens is we, we get our text, and I, I figure out what Wes preached last week or whatever, and I'll look at my text and I'll start reading. I'll read it over and over and over as many times as I can until I, I feel like I've got the gist of it, and then we'll start asking questions. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to think of every question that y'all might have, and I'll try to think of every question that I have, and, and I'll write them all down. And there's, there's a lot of questions, y'all. And, and after that, we'll kind of answer the questions until we need to pursue like a commentary to get a little further advice on, on certain things. And that, that's kind of how the sermon comes together over time. Y'all, I opened up these 10 verses this week and read them, and I was just like, what in the world? Like, I had more questions than I have ever had of any text that I've read, and and I promise you I'm not exaggerating. I think you'll understand what I'm talking about, but it was impressive. There are so many questions. Uh, There are so many intriguing, interesting questions. There's so much to be learned from this text today that I'm really excited to dive into it with you. So what we're going to do is I'm going to save you any kind of colorful intro illustration here, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray, and we're going to read the text. So if y'all would bow your heads with me, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that uh, I get to stand here and have the opportunity to open your word with, with your church, Lord. It's it's so fun to, to study your word together and learn what you have for us in this, Father. I, pro- I pray that you would just enlighten us to your truths that are in this. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts. You'd allow us to understand and grow in the things that you have to teach us. And and Father, I pray that we would walk out of these doors, uh, changed people, and we'd want to invest in ministry in a new way. And and Father, I pray that you would just use your spirit to guide us in that, Father. So uh, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your son, Lord. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm gonna start in verse one of chapter 12 here. Read with me. I must go on boasting... On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. All right. Well, if you're like me, You had a couple questions of this text and in your first thoughts, let me guess it. What in the world is the third heaven? Y'all, and if it wasn't that, it was probably who is this this like mystery guy with visions and revelations? What is Paul talking about here? And y'all, these are really good questions. These are really intriguing questions, really interesting questions, and we're gonna get to them. But before we do, there's a bigger question that I actually want to begin our morning with here. I want to begin with the simple question of why. Why is Paul even referencing these mans? Why is Paul even referencing these visions, these revelations, this third heaven, this paradise? Why is Paul even talking about them? To answer that question, it really began last week and it's going to go through chapter 12 here. And if you ask me, I think this is actually some of Paul's most passionate writing. Like, he's really, really invested in this. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he's having to defend himself. He's having to defend his integrity, his apostolic authority. You see, Paul's integrity has been called into question. There's, there are false apostles here. They've said that he's been lying about his ministry, that his credentials are fake, that he's making up these stories, that he has some hidden life that he's in ministry for for the money. They've said everything they can to degrade Paul's reputation. And the sad part about the whole thing is that the Corinthian church is actually starting to buy it. They're actually starting to buy in, to be swayed, to allow these false preachers into their churches. And they're not even standing to defend Paul So Paul writes to them. Like This would be like West going to North Carolina for a few weeks. We invite some guest pastor in here and he starts preaching some false gospel to you, some prosperity gospel. Like you can, you know, whatever you want in life, you should just pray for it and you can have it or you should work and work and work and one day you'll get to heaven. These like false things that are lies. And he starts to slander West and say, you guys shouldn't believe him. And he hears word of it. West catches word of it and West writes us. West writes GBC and he says, hey guys, remember me? The like guy like started the church that's discipled so many of you, that it's shared the true gospel with you over and over and over. Do you guys remember me? That's basically the point of Second Corinthians. That's what Paul's doing here. He's defending his honor. He's defending his integrity, his character, his apostleship. But he does that in a really unconventional way. You see, these false teachers, these ones that are slandering Paul, they've been boasting and boasting and boasting. They've been bragging about their power and these prophetic visions that they're having, and they've been speaking really eloquently, and they're using a lot of sophisticated language trying to, to show their strength and show their uh, just tenacity. But Paul does just the opposite of that. If you were here last week, and remember from chapter 11, Paul says, I've been put in prison. I've been beaten with rods, I've received lashings, I've been stoned, I've been shipwrecked, I've been robbed, I've been left hungry, I've been left thirsty, I've been near death. And above all these things, Paul says, I've actually just been really anxious and really concerned and really stressed for you guys, my, my churches, my people, the Corinthian church, because you're allowing these people to come in and sway you. Can you see how Paul is directly contrasting these self righteous Self-exalting, self-proclaiming, false apostles that have infiltrated this Corinthian church, they're, they're ripping Paul's reputation to shreds. These guys are claiming to have all the answers. They're claiming to have all the details. But, but Paul has scars. He has scars on his back. He's faced death multiple times. This, this is the why. This is why. Why Paul must write and defend himself. This is why he speaks so passionately to the Corinthian church in this letter. This is why he begins to actually boast. He's calling the Corinthians to see the true nature of following Christ. So here in verse 1 he says, I must go on boasting. I must must keep establishing my apostleship to you all. I must keep establishing my authority to you all. And in verses two through four, he tells us this story, this, this story about this man with a vision, this vision of third heaven, a paradise. These are the questions that you guys had right after we read our text earlier. I mean, third heaven, like mystery man, we're not sure if he was in his body or out of his body, like what's going on here? Let's read verses two through four again real quick. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Okay. The man Paul speaks of here, believe it or not, get this, it's Paul himself. That's right. That's what we learn if we look to verse 7 here. Paul is simply speaking in third person here. And he's telling of this, this vision and this revelation that he had 14 years ago. Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven. He's saying, I experienced paradise myself. And what he's doing here is he's, he's comparing himself. He's contrasting himself to the false apostles who are also claiming visions. Who also claim to have these revelations from the Lord. And Paul's like, yeah, I have those two I just haven't been boasting about them over and over and over. I don't, I don't feel the need to justi- justify myself to all of you and my experiences. So, that's settled. It's Paul. What about our other questions? To start, Paul says that he was caught up. This is a word that was used a couple times in the New Testament. It means to be snatched up or, or whisked away. Uh, if you're a Trekkie, this is like being beamed up. Or if, or if you're a potter person, this is like, uh, like apparating. If you're a Harry Potter fan, for you non-nerds out there, this is is like Philip being snatched up or whisked away by the spirit after baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. And where does Paul say that he's caught up? Where does he say that he gets whisked away to? He says to the third heaven, the third heaven. Now, if you're like me, you're probably like, I thought there was only one heaven. (laughs) What in the world? three heavens? Is, is, is this like some kind of uh, like minor league type thing? Like there's double there's A AA and triple A and then the majors. And, and I thought the Lord was taking me straight to the majors. Like what are these, these two other heavens here? To understand what that is, you've got to know a little bit about Jewish cosmology and the ways that the Jews kind of understood the universe at this time. And don't worry, it's actually way simpler than you're actually probably thinking. Here's the way that Jews saw heaven. The first heaven was the clouds in the sky above. You step outside, you look up, you see the first heaven. The second heaven, the next level, this refers to the sun and the stars, all the things that are kind of beyond the sky, space. And the third heaven, this is what Paul's actually talking about here. It's it's the place where God dwells. It's, It's just what we actually think of when we think of heaven. So Paul's saying, I wasn't just in the clouds, and and I wasn't just among the stars, but I actually experienced heaven. And he said, I don't don't know if my body was actually with me or not, but the Spirit supernaturally whisked me away to heaven, and I experienced the Lord, and I experienced his presence, and I received a revelation directly from him. And so, like in verse 1, Paul's now boasting. He's bragging about this experience. Now, I want you to put yourself in the Corinthians' shoes for just a moment. On one hand, you've got these false apostles, right? They're they're boasting in their ministry. They're trying to convince the Corinthians that they're they're real legit in their work. And then you've got Paul, and he's writing to share, and and these are his words. He's boasting in his own experiences, his own authority. How would you know who to believe if you were a Corinthian? How would you know how to choose between the two people and and them portraying their experiences to you. And I know this is kind of a really specific example that we're looking at in 2 Corinthians, but this is is actually a problem that we face today, uh, honestly, daily, right? How do we know who to listen to? And and I want you all to hear this. How can we know who to follow? Because one of the great things about living today in, in, in our modern society is that we've got essentially unlimited resources at, like, directly at the touch of our fingers. We've got more content, more preaching, more resources than ever before. And it's not just that you've got your Bible in your pocket with you at all times. You've got access to, to sermons, to commentaries, to podcasts, to books, to audiobooks, You've got TV series. You've got movies. There is so much faith-based content out there and it's, it's definitely a blessing, don't get me wrong. But it can also be something that we need to be really careful of. It can also be something that we need to be really discerning in. You see, people like John Mark Comer, Sadie Robertson, Chip and JoJo, for you Chip and JoJo fans, Doug Wilson, Ali Bestucki, Beth Moore, Tim Keller, different media like The Bible Recap, The Briefing, the Bible Project, The Chosen, our ministries like Desiring God, Grace to You, Ligonier, they're all producing so much faith-based content. Which, by the way, my listing them out isn't actually an endorsement for any of them, so I'm just laying that out there. I'm just laying out the things that I know that y'all put in front of you, that y'all listen to, and y'all watch, and I do too myself. And the point is this, Despite what I'm sure are really good intentions, despite them sounding sophisticated and smart, despite them addressing really relevant cultural and theological issues, despite even the good reviews on Google, and the name recognition, and the fame, and the following, not all of the content that we actually have access to is always good. It's not all edifying and really Some of it's actually bad. Some of it's actually false. And it's our job, guided by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, tethered to God's Word, grounded by our our community, our pastors, our elders, to be discerning and to discern well of what we actually take in. Because we're taking these things in on a daily basis, more so often than our, our community, our church, the people that are invested in our lives. It can be so easy to get like the Corinthians are, get to a point where you stop listening to Paul. You become swayed, you become influenced by other voices, outside voices. You become swayed by people and ministries that claim big things. People who, by the way, haven't been living life right next to you, or are suffering alongside of you, or, or serving weekly with you, and that's exactly where the Corinthians are. Again, that's why Paul's writing them. He's trying to win them back. He's trying to win them back, and he does it. He does it by boasting, and if that feels weird that, that Paul is boasting, that he's bragging, it's because it sort of is. Most of us, if you're like me, and I'm guessing you guys are probably pretty similar in this, We'd probably say that bragging and boasting, that it's bad, that it's wrong. I bet a lot of us would say it's even sinful. But here, Paul's boasting is a positive. Four times in six verses, Paul defends himself boasting as good, necessary even. But why is that? Again, this comes from last week, and it's gonna bleed throughout chapter 12. But Paul's not boasting for selfish reasons. He's not like the false apostles, the guys who are saying, hey, look at me, look at me and my ministry. Not in in his visions or revelations. He's not boasting in his gifts or his ministry, but in his weakness. Rather than saying, look at me, look at me, Paul's saying, look at God. And look at what God has done in and through my life. So, the natural question that we have from this is pretty simple, really. If boasting's not always bad, and, and that's what Paul's point is here, if boasting can be good, if it can be right, depending on what we're boasting in, the natural question is this What are we actually boasting in? What are you boasting in in your life? We all do it, we do it daily. As I studied this text this past week, it naturally created this kind of self-evaluation process that's always fun and not so fun um, as you do these kind of things. And it just basically asked me what I'm boasting in. I, I, I naturally probably struggle with pride. I'm, I'm a prideful person. You can, you can ask my wife. You can ask my boss. You can ask my parents who are here today. Uh, you can ask a handful of people. It, it's, it's just something I, I generally struggle with. But you know what I'm specifically convicted of? I'm convicted that I boast in ministry. I want people to think that I'm the most important person in the room. I want people to think that I'm a a leader. I'm a spiritual leader. So I prop up what I'm doing anytime somebody asks me. Leader development, writing a sermon, discipleship, curriculum. But what I'm not doing often enough is saying... Like, look at what the Lord has kindly taught me. The Lord has allowed this to happen in my life. God has given me some really fun opportunities to serve this church, to serve his people. Or, or, I'm convicted that I boast in my image. I want people to think that I'm put together. There's a lot of put together people in this room and I, I want to fit in. I want to I look Put together, confident, without struggle. I've got a nice house and a nice car and a beautiful wife and a cute pup. I've got life together. So I boast. And it's it's just not true. Except my wife, she's beautiful. <laughs> what I don't say though, what I don't say is look at what the Lord has provided me. I don't deserve these things. They weren't of my doing but I'm so thankful for the life that God has given me. Or I'm convicted that I boast in my vacations. This is something I've been convicted of recently. I go to these glamorous places and I love to tell everyone about it. I love to let them know that, man, it was just a little too short. I wish I could go back. It was was the greatest place on earth. You know what I don't say? I can't believe the Lord could create a place so beautiful. We just really didn't deserve a trip like that. It was a great opportunity to grow our marriage, to experience a different place, to see how beautiful God's creation was. Y'all, I could do this for so many things. Maybe you could too. Maybe you boast about your career, your material possessions, the things you have, Maybe you boast about your kids, your grandkids, how great their little league team was this year. Maybe you boast about your lake house, your ranch house, or how frugal your spending is, or your tolerance for gluten. (laughs) All, All we're doing is putting pride on display. We're saying, hey, look at me, look how great my life is. I can eat any bread I want. We're just looking to gain something. We're not all that different from these false apostles. Instead, we need to be more like Paul. Like I said earlier, we need to be better at not saying, look at me, look at me, look at what I've done, look at my ministry, my life. Instead, we need to be better at saying, hey, look at God, look at how he's using me, look at what he's doing in my life, look at where he's taking me in life. And I get it, that's that's probably easier said than done. But Paul's gonna give us the key to his ability to actually do this. He's gonna talk about how this is becoming just more and more natural in his life because of some key thing. And so I wanna read verses seven through 10 here and we're gonna find out what that looks like in Paul's life. Verse seven. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content With my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul immediately here reminds us of how great, how incredible his revelations are, how he could probably create this popularity and this this following if he really wanted to, how he could probably be a Christian celebrity. He might even have his own revelations podcast, and y'all would listen to it every day. He could balloon his ego out of control, but what happens? The Lord gives Paul a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. The Greek word for thorn here is scallops, and it could probably be better translated as steak. It doesn't sound that good in a sentence, but stake shows the severity, the intensity of the suffering, how big a burden it would be for Paul. The Greek word for messenger here is angelos. I'm guessing you guys can probably figure that one out. It's like angel, an angel of Satan. We see this elsewhere in scripture. It's fairly common. Angel of Satan is, is a demon, basically. So if we look back at verses 7 and 8 then, basically what happens is the Lord has sent Paul a stake in his flesh, this, in, this intense suffering, a demon to torment him, to harass him. And what exactly then is this demon? I'm going to borrow a phrase from Paul here. I do not know. God knows. <laughs> there's, there's really two lines of thought here, and it's actually, there's, there's a lot more. There's two prominent lines of thoughts here, but the first is this, that the demon came in this form of a physical ailment. Uh, for, for Paul, this was his eyesight. It's pretty widely accepted and well known that throughout much of his ministry, Paul struggled with his eyesight. He had poor eyesight. Uh, he had an issue with one of his eyes, at least, This is what Paul could be referring to as this thorn in his flesh. He actually calls it a weakness, his weakness. The second thought here is that this demon was basically the spirit of these deceivers, of these false apostles. They were seducing the Corinthian church into rebelling against Paul. So that's kind of that second line of thinking of what that demon is. Regardless of which it is, it's important to remember that this thorn, this stake, this weakness of Paul's, it was ultimately from God. It was ultimately from God. This demon of Satan was allowed by God. Doesn't that seem a little bit backwards to you? I want y'all to look at, think about two places in scripture where this actually happens. The first, and I think you can probably guess this one, is Job. God permits Satan to afflict Job for his own purposes. God says to Satan, he says, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. And we see Satan strike Job over and over and over. Our second example, it's a little bit more convoluted. In the Gospel of Luke, Satan demands to have Peter. And what happens? Peter then denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. So here's why I remind you of these two stories. It's because this can be a really difficult concept to grasp. But we must be confident. We must be confident. Satan's assault on Paul, the thorn, the stake, the demonic messenger, the harassing demon, these things do not take place outside of God's will and outside of God's authority. The God of the universe... The creator of heaven and earth and all that is in it. Our God is is sovereign. He's sovereign over all of creation. And he can use even the forces of evil, even the kingdom of darkness to accomplish his righteous purposes. If we look back at our passage today, if we look back to scripture as a whole, we know that Paul's critical to God's plan of redemption for his people, right? I mean, he wrote half of the New Testament. And we can see God using the forces of evil, allowing demonic influences, an angel of Satan, a thorn, a stake, a harassment, in order to keep Paul here humble. Paul says twice, to keep me from becoming conceited. God allowed Satan to bring suffering, to achieve in us a greater usefulness in his plan. Scripture often speaks about how we suffer, how to suffer well, how to respond to difficult situations. There's like a thousand books written about it. A lot of people have an opinion on how to suffer well. Paul's message for us this morning is not that, though. Instead, particularly in verses 7 through 10, Paul's message is why we may suffer. It's a look into the character of God. It's a look into who our God is. Think about this for a second. It would be Satan's desire for Paul to become conceited, to become uh, someone who's boasting in himself all of the time. That would be what would help Satan's ministry. It's Satan's desire that Paul would become conceited, that he would boast in his own experiences, that he would glory in his own vision of heaven, just as we might boast in our own experiences, our own ministry, our own families, our own vacations. But the Lord has this thorn for Paul. He's got this weakness. He produces in him this suffering. My charge for you in this is to see God for who he is, It's to see God as the creator, the sovereign provider. And while we often thank him for his provisions in our lives, the things that he's provided to us, such as family and shelter and work, what we do is we often disassociate God with suffering. We must come to understand that the Lord might be allowing this to happen for some beautiful outcome for you, or maybe for someone else long after you, but it's always unto his glory. God's character is good, he's doing a good work in you, just as he did with Paul, even in Paul's suffering. So, my question for you is how will you respond the next time the Lord places a difficulty in your path, a suffering in your path? the death of a loved one, that diagnosis that you just really didn't want to hear, that broken bone, the job rejection, maybe a a struggling bank account. How will you respond to a a struggling marriage, a a really bad breakup, The, the loneliness, the infertility, the gossip, the lies, the slander about you How will you respond? How does Paul respond? The first thing he does is he prays to the Father. If you look at verse 8, three times Paul pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave him. The Lord says, nope. But in it, the Lord describes his plan, his good work he's doing in Paul, his purpose in the thorn. The Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. He's saying, you don't need to be conceited. You don't need to boast in your experience. You don't need to be like them, like those false apostles. He says, my grace, the grace I've given you is enough. The Lord has for Paul that thorn that he would be made weak so that Paul would be humbled in his ministry. And in this, Paul shows us that the glory of the Lord is most prevalent. The glory of the Lord is most prevalent, most seen when we as Christians, when we decrease, when we are humbled, when we are brought to our lowest points. At these points in our lives, when we're at our very weakest, when we're suffering, when we've been humbled we're reminded that we are not in control, that we've been striving in life to accomplish all of these things, but it's just not working. To obtain something that we could boast about to the world, but we are not sovereign. And at our weakest, in verse nine here, we see that at our weakest, God's power is made perfect. God's power rests on us the most, Because of this, Paul doesn't say, look at me, look at me, like the false apostles are doing. Paul's saying, look at God. And he responds with, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. So that the power of God, that power that's made perfect, will then rest upon me. Our greatest boast then, our boasts, are in our weaknesses, Paul shows us that boasting is and should be a good thing because as we boast in our weakness, as we reflect on the Lord's perfect power, his perfect might, as we boast in our weakness, we show the world that we just rely on God, that we can only depend on God, that all we've achieved is nothing and that all we have is from him. It's grace. It's his unmerited kindness towards we, his sons and daughters. This is faith. This is what faith is. It's seeing God for who he is. It's depending wholly on him. It's our only way to paradise. It's our only way to the third heaven. By grace, through faith, not of our own doing, but a gift of God, not by our works, but in him. So what should we do with all of this? Let's bring it together. I'm standing up here telling you to boast in your weaknesses. Paul's telling us to boast in, to embrace that weakness. But you and me and the world that we live in we don't want to be weak. We actually hate weakness. We work every single day to remove these weaknesses from our lives, to hide them, to cover them, to mitigate them. Maybe we try to strengthen them, to avoid them. Think of the last interview you were in. You probably asked, what's your biggest weakness? You probably said something like, I'm just way too kind to everyone. (laughs) Or, Or like, I just I really always like to work overwork myself. I just can't help it. You're just naming a strength and calling it a weakness. We're not we're not even willing to admit true weaknesses that we actually have. But Paul, Paul's putting them on display for everyone, unmasked, unmitigated, unapologetic, because it says, look at God. It shows how incredible his ministry is. Not because of him, but because of the power of God within him. It's, it's kind of counterintuitive. It's challenging. It's, it's unlike anything else in life. But it's the fuel to God's fire. It's, it's the gasoline that ignites this flame. It's what's driving Paul's ministry. And when we realize our weaknesses when we put ourselves in situations that will actually display our worldly weaknesses, God shows up. We can clearly see the strength of God. It's it's how we experience him. So as you consider discipleship relationships, as you consider evangelism, as you consider ministry, what are the things that make you weak? What are the things that, that feel like your deficiencies? Maybe this is your past sin, something you've really been struggling with, or it's your, your busy schedule. You're a mom and feel like you just can't quite have, you don't quite have time for life, or you're, you're a new Christian and you say, well, I just, I just don't have enough knowledge of, of the Bible, of God. Maybe you've been a Christian for 30 years and you're saying, I just don't have enough knowledge of God or the Bible. Maybe you feel like you're not that cool or smart or outgoing or athletic or creative. What is your weakness? I want you to walk away today envisioning how you can embrace your weaknesses, how you can highlight your weaknesses to the world that you live in. Maybe just how you can open up, how you can share your weaknesses, how you can become more vulnerable, transparent in life. That you could see this as an opportunity for the Lord to move and to see his strength. You could see him move in your life, see him move in the lives of the people that you're discipling, people that you're sharing the name of Christ with. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful again for your word, for what you have for us in it, Father, that you tell us that we can boast and boast in you, Father. I pray that you would uh, highlight in us our weaknesses. You would show us uh, where we are not strong, Father, and that we would step into those situations willingly and joyfully, uh, not worried about worldly opinion, but knowing, Father, that your name will be made great because of it, that a light will shine on you because of it, that people might come to know you because of how we're able to talk about the things that we struggle with. Lord, I pray that we would see that you might have these things for us. That is part of your character. That is a good thing. It is a part of your good plan in our lives, God. And I pray that we would be overjoyed knowing who you are and how much you love us in that. Father, we love you, and we ask all of these things in your son's name, amen.